Welcome to That's Derm Good. I'm Janelle Ball, and I'm excited to bring you thought-provoking conversations about biologics, especially medications, treatments, and so much more. I'll be chatting with some amazing guests about access, affordability, and advocacy. You're really going to enjoy this show. This episode is sponsored by BC Educators. BC Educators offers in-office training and virtual bio coordinators to create a single point of contact for everything from prior authorizations to prescription acquisition and patient follow-up. To ensure your patients have the access to the medications they need, hire the right team to simplify your dermatology office processes. Visit bceducators.com. That's b-c-e-d-u-c-a-t-o-r-s.com. Patient access is our priority. Hi, Angie. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. God is good. So you're a biologic coordinator consultant. I have that title as well. And, you know, consulting is really, I've gotten so excited about doing this just because there's so many companies that need our opinion, that want our opinion, and we're lucky enough to be able to share our knowledge and really kind of understand the landscape of the biologics process and getting that access to medications and stuff. How do you feel about being a biologic coordinator and a consultant as well? Okay. So I'm going to give a long-winded answer because everyone that knows me knows that I talk a lot. So first, in order to be a biologic coordinator consultant, you need to be a biologic coordinator, right? And that in itself is a superpower. So there's so much that goes into our role, you know, our line of work. And, you know, I'm just going to name off a few non-negotiables. So you have to have drive, you have to have a passion and a desire and a willingness to help others. And you have to really put up a fight with those pharmacy benefit managers all the way through to resorting to an external review. If you have to get there, you have to have that hunger to continue to further your education as the specialty medication space is always changing and the ability to ask for help from your peers or your FRMs, uh, you know, those are going to be your best friends when you just don't know the answer. Uh, We can't always know everything and it's never good to think that you know everything and to assume that you know everything. As a biologic coordinator consultant, you work with offices to see what their process is, you find out what their pain points are, and you figure out how you can enhance their workflow and implement a streamlined process that will work with the providers and the supporting staff, and also pharmaceutical companies, because they want to know everything that we know. Yeah, there's so much that goes into it, but you know, this is why I've been so excited to be able to work with you, not only as a consultant, but with BC Educators. So you're BC Educators Chief Operating Officer, the COO, right? What is that? Can you explain? So as a Chief Operating Officer of BC Educators, I do just what the title says. So I manage the operations by working with the offices and setting them up for success. So you find the pain points, you educate the staff and the providers, and then you implement our process into their workflow. I mean, it sounds simple, but it's not that simple, you know, right. yeah. Just the personalities that you work with every single day. Right. Okay. You said documentation, but I, I want to jump into that. But first let's step back a little bit. Tell me, how did you even get into this role? And have you always been a bio coordinator or you started as a medical assistant you know, a lot of times, most coordinators that I talk to have kind of been thrown into this role. So how did you get into it? Okay. 
So I've been in the healthcare industry now for 17 years. I worked in family practice. It was very hands-on and that kind of prepared me for the field of dermatology. So I was contacted by a recruiter 15 years ago. There was a new dermatology office that was going to be opening up and I got the position. And I would say that my doc is blessed uh, ever since, you know, July, 2008. And I've been working now with the office and I have grown as the practice has grown. And as you know, most dermatology offices do not have a biologic coordinator. They mm -hmm. normally don't have a single point of contact. Over six years ago, our office was a mess with the biologic process. Every single medical assistant was doing their own prior auth. They were doing their own appeals and patients were following up. And, you know, I could have been working on something. Someone else was working on a different patient. You know, you never get the same patients. So you just never knew what was going on. Like, was the patient on drug? Was the patient approved? Were they on bridge? Did we even get their blood work? So I kind of volunteered as tribute because nobody else wanted to be the biologic coordinator. That's usually how it works. It can be a difficult job sometimes, but it always takes that one person that is a little bit more excited to do some of the brunt work and some of the stuff that nobody else really wants to do, like sit on the phone on hold with the insurance company forever. But that was very brave of you. I know. And honestly, I had to think about it and I was like, well, who else would be good at this, you know, in the office? And I'm like, mm, nobody, I'll do it. <laughs> I just pay a lot of attention to detail and things have to be done a certain way. And I'm kind of mm -hmm. boss too. So I'm like, this is what needs to be done. Do it. So do you do anything else in the office? So um, aside from being the biologic coordinator and managing all of the patients and making sure that their blood work is done in a timely manner and, you know, following up with all of that, I also am considered the MIPS officer. Okay. What is MIPS? So MIPS stands for Merit-Based Incentive Payment System. So in order to simplify it, it's a program that transitions physicians from fee for service to value over volume. So it's that incentive program that rewards physicians who achieve high performance and it penalizes physicians that don't meet program requirements. Okay. So I would like to say that I have an amazing MIPS consultant and my office has had 100% for the past six years. So wow. yeah. Is that hard to get? It is hard to get because honestly, it's a team effort. So you have your consultant, your consultant configures your dashboard. They tell you exactly what you need to do. It's kind of like what we do at BC Educators, how we kind of instruct the offices on what they need to do. Mm -hmm. That's what the MIPS consultant does. And then I am in charge of enforcing it and making sure that everyone is on the same page with documentation. So what I love about MIPS is that it kind of gets people in the habit of doing things that they normally wouldn't. And, you know, CMS collects all of this data and, you know, a lot of the stuff that we do for MIT doesn't necessarily pertain to dermatology, but I hear in the few years, they're going to have something more tailored for each specialty. So, mm. so I, when it comes to enforcing that, it's just what goes into the documentation, right? Yes. It's what goes in with the documentation. And honestly, like I said, it's a team effort. I don't know how I used to do so many overrides and, 
you know, update all of this documentation by amending chart notes or getting updated information from patients. So now what I did is I delegated each quality measure to a medical assistant and that's what they oversee. But every single time a patient comes in, you know, there are certain things that they have to check off in mm -hmm. order for us to get those points. Yeah. Is there anything within MIPS that you have to document in specifically dermatology that can help with documentation for like prior authorizations and things like that? So for MIPS specifically in dermatology, they do have this itch score that is required for any type mm -hmm. of dermatitis. There's also, you know, if the patient is on a biologic therapy, you know, have they met the benchmark? Are they doing well on it? Yes or no. Mm -hmm. And then you'll also have, you know, if they didn't meet the benchmark and you're changing therapy, you know, there's that option for the new starts. They also want to know whether or not a TB test has been ordered. That's a new one that just came up. Obviously, you have to make sure that the current medications are documented, you yeah. know. You have, you have to select that. So it's not actual like documentation, sort of say there's these little measures that you can kind of click on it, come up with a little menu and you just choose from there. That have this little drop down that says patient met the benchmark or patient has been on biologic therapy six months or less, you know, whatever the case might be. Okay. Now that makes sense. As far as making it easier for offices, you know, I feel like offices don't realize that it is the documentation that's causing those denials. And, you know, we want our providers to be able to write whatever medication they want, right? Without having to worry about, oh, well, that one is a challenge to get, or, you know, the reason why that one's so hard is because insurance is always denying our prior authorizations. But really it could be, it could just come down to how things are documented, right? Exactly. And as long as the patient has commercial insurance, they always ask me, which one's the easiest? And I always tell them, you pick. I can get anything you want as long as they have commercial insurance. Anything. Right. Majority of these companies have these bridge programs or some sort of way that your commercially insured patients can get a medication. Medicare, you know, any government funded plans, those are going to be a different story. But for your commercial patients, it shouldn't be that difficult, right? No. And if you have the documentation to back up the medical necessity, as well as tried and failed therapies or contraindications, there should be no reason whatsoever mm -hmm. why your prior authorization should be denied. What gives me so much gratification each and every day is when I'm on cover my meds and I'm inputting information and I'm doing a prior auth and I hit send to plan and it just says approved. It's my favorite. Yes, it <laughs> is. It makes you feel so good. It's, it's so much easier. I wish most plans would do that, but I feel like even now there's still, there's some insurance plans that are trying to step away from that. And it's frustrating because it makes it even more difficult to do that prior auth. Like I saw, I can't remember what plan it was the other day, but it literally said that we are not affiliated with cover my meds. And so I couldn't do that prior authorization on there. I was so mad. I was like, seriously, like that's one of the easiest platforms to be able to use to do a prior off yeah. and, and it's fast, you know, and that's what I, that's what we need is something that's quick. And it's those small plans. It's the yeah. small plans that really kill you. 
So let's talk about that for a second. Like, what do you do in the office to make sure that you're getting as much information from patients? Because I feel like the documentation is so huge, right? But also, how do we make sure that we're able to get as much information into those notes or how patients know what information that they need to bring in to that appointment? I actually recently went with my sister-in-law to a doctor's appointment for my nephew and you know, I wanted to be able to be there so I could hear what was going on and, you know, maybe help answer some of the questions and things like that, just because, you know, my background in healthcare. But, you know, when I was sitting here thinking, I was like, oh, I should have told her ahead of time, like, you should have this, this and this ready for the doctor when you go in for that appointment or what medications you've tried and failed and things like that. But do you have anything in place in your office you have like a list, you know, X, Y, Z, certain information to input into the chart notes, especially when it comes to biologics. So it all starts at the front desk. So in the front desk staff, they ask the patient what they're coming in for. In a perfect world, the front desk will tell the patient, make sure you bring your insurance card, make sure you bring the most up-to-date medication list that you have. If you take any medications, when the patient comes in, just making sure that they have filled all of the paperwork out. Like if you use Emma, you can input all the information in a kiosk. So you can just kind of do that either ahead of time or at the time, you know, right before your appointment. And then it's that checks and balances. A lot of the times patients, when they fill everything out on the iPad or even on the paperwork, there's missing information. They'll put a lot of meds, but they won't put any medical conditions. So again, it's like checks and balances, team effort. That's where the medical assistant steps in when they're inputting the data or they're in the room with the patient. They ask them, I see you're taking, you know, Lipitor. What do you take that for? Because in healthcare, you should never assume what the patient is taking a medication for. You know, patient mm-hmm. can have diabetes and they can, you know, take a medication for hypertension, but they don't have hypertension. It's preventative. You know, it's just important to make sure that the medical assistants understand you have to have all of the updated medical conditions as well as the medication list. If the patient doesn't have a list, you know, you can usually import through Emma and then kind of go through the list that way, or you can always ask the patient to bring a list in later, or I have gone above and beyond and I've actually called the pharmacy and asked them to fax over a list because the patient is in. I've done that before too. And that can be really helpful. It is, especially when you need those tried and failed therapies, you know, if mm-hmm. a patient's going for psoriasis or for atopic dermatitis, even for acne, you know, mm-hmm. you just need all that information. If you don't have it, then, you know, you're kind of going to start from ground zero, right? Right. Well, you know, what's funny. I mean, and this is terrible. I, even as a patient myself, you know, if I go to the doctor's office and they're like, oh, what other medications are you taking? And I cannot for the life of me remember. And I'm like, oh shoot, I don't even remember what it was, you know, and that's terrible to say, but I should have a list written down or, you know, even if it's like one or two medications, I should have that list. I'm the same way. (laughs) You just, you need to know, we need to know what other medications you're taking, especially if it could be a contraindication to something that the prescriber wants to prescribe. Exactly. Even if it's a topical. Like people yeah. hear me out, even if you are on a topical. And sure. over the counter too, because 
for insurance. They want to know every single thing that patients have tried and failed. So, you know, and that really comes down to documentation. And this is where it's so difficult. I think for us, when we're trying to do the prior authorization, and this is why documentation is so, so important, you know, making sure that we've got all of the clinical criteria so that we can really answer all those questions, you know, because now all these insurance companies, they want to know what the patients tried and failed. They want to know the dates. You know, they want to know so many details, but they also want to see it in the chart notes. It's not like back in the day, I remember where I used to fill out a prior authorization. They just ask those questions like, oh, has the patient tried and failed this? Or what does the patient try to fail? And I could just fill it out and say, yep, they've done it. But now it's like, okay, well, let me see proof that they've done it. You know, what are the dates? And I know. And it's kind of hard, especially if you have a patient that was at another derm office and, you know, have dates or they're just a poor historian. They might even mm-hmm. give you the wrong dermatologist name that they were seeing before. That's happened before where we've requested medical records and they're like, we've never seen this patient. <laughs> oh, that happens. The joys of healthcare. <laughs> With BC educators, one of the things that we do like to implement is making sure that we're educating the staff on how to document properly. What are your thoughts on that? Like, how do you feel about doing that and the importance of that? Okay, so first off, there are a lot of offices out there that think that their documentation is great. When you read it, you cringe because you know what good looks like. It's important to educate the office and at BC Educators, you know, we've created a lot of different material to kind of hold their hand in the process Mm -hmm. when it comes to documentation, but it's also just giving them those live examples and just teaching them how to ask certain questions and, and for them to remember that because a lot of the times, you know, you can send me 50 tasks for prior authorizations, but if I don't have a location, I don't have a body surface area, I don't have tried and failed therapies, I don't have how this is affecting their quality of life, if there's itching, pain, you know, whatever the case might be, the patient's not sleeping, right? If none of that is documented in the chart, I don't really have anything to work with. Mm -hmm. And then it results in me having to call the patient and Mm -hmm. ask them, hey, how is this affecting your life? I have seen that with my own eyes and I just have never... I can never complain that my office doesn't document ever again because they are darn good. So what are some examples of an office that is having issues getting access to medication and they make it sound like it's more of the insurance? Yeah, what I would tell them and what we tell them is it's your documentation. The most common reason for a prior authorization to be denied is because there is no supporting documentation to show that the medication the prescriber is writing for is medically necessary for the patient. And then you have the utilization management that has all of these specific criteria, these tried and failed therapies. They're not documented. Just write for the topical, just write for the TCI. You know, you can appeal it two times, three times, whatever the case might be. They're still going to deny it if they have not tried and failed a TCI for most, you know, for psoriasis and atopic dermatitis. Most common thing is the high potency corticosteroid, right? But it's like, okay, when was it prescribed? How long ago, you know, did they use it? Were they using it consistently? Is it documented? Mm -hmm. You know, you'll see charting where you'll see that the prescriber 
you know, sometimes you'll have where the prescriber gave them a TCS and a TCI. And then when the patient follows up, there is no documentation that shows whether or not the patient used the medication. Did it help them? How often are they using it? All of that is missing. Mm-hmm. And then you just go to the virtual exam room part, the exam part, and it says, oh, clear or, you know, better. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, how is it better? No clue. Why? What did they do? <laughs> it, just ha- it just happened. You know, details. It's details. It's all in the details, right? It is all in the details. I cannot stress that enough. It drives me crazy when your documentation needs to tell a story. It right. has to tell a story. It has to tell a story in order for you to do a prior authorization. Let's say it was something simple. You get a denial, something simple, and the prescriber decided to write for the TCI. Okay, great. Then when you write an appeal, you can say patient tried and failed this, but this is also how, you know, their quality of life is. Like if, if you don't mm-hmm. have that quality of life in there, you know, some insurances, they might not really look at that and they just want to see the tried and failed. But oftentimes I have seen in my personal experience that they will take those things into consideration. Mm-hmm. Like- if it's a really high body surface area or they can't really use the topical. I mean, that wouldn't make sense. Also have patients that have the psoriasis or the atopic derm, like on their hands really bad or their feet, mm-hmm. or just, you know, even if it's their back, what if they live alone and they don't have anyone to apply it? Or right. you know, what if it's 80% of their body? Like how many tubes of protopic is their insurance really going to cover? And mm-hmm. are they really going to be able to apply it all over their body? It's probably right. going to be not even a week, right? Yeah. Like, There's so many ways to get around these prior authorization denials. You just have to read, you have to read the denial, understand the denial and proceed from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're on the board of directors for access coordinator bootcamp, um, ACBC. So tell me about that. What is that? And tell me what you do with that. Okay. So access coordinator bootcamp is a nonprofit multi-specialty organization that is designed to help coordinators from numerous specialties who prescribe biologic and systemic medications for patients with autoimmune diseases. You know, this past year, we actually just had our inaugural meeting in May in the great state of Texas. So right now we have advisors for dermatology, rheumatology, asthma, allergy, as well as gastro. And I believe we just added ENT and we're just growing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all have experience with different plans or whatever the case might be. It's amazing to see how we are growing. Like we're all kind of scattered throughout the nation. You know, something that I just want to tell everyone is it's important to learn from your peers. You don't know everything. Like so many people in ACBC and also, you know, just working with you, And with Brandy, for example, I have learned other things that I did not know. And I'm just like, oh, wow, you know, you're always furthering your education. You're always learning. And I think it's important for you to always have an open mind because, you know, there's so many biologic coordinators that think they know it all. And, you know, you, you just really don't. We don't. Right. And I'm always learning new things and I'm always open to learning new things just because, Things change all the time. You oh, know, it's a drop of a dime. Insurance is like, nope, we're not, we're no longer accepting that. You have to do it this way. And, you know, so there's always something new to learn. There's always new tricks and things that you can kind of work around to try to make sure that we're able to get that access. But I think 
having those peers is huge. It's, it's so important to be able to talk to people and, you know, and I learn so much when I get to talk to, to you and to any of my other colleagues. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, and that is, you know, I feel like a lot of times people that get into healthcare kind of jump into it because they've got personal experience. They've got something personal about it that draws them into that role. And, you know, just having that passion to be able to help our patients and to want to make sure that they are doing great, you know, seeing where they're coming from, you know, that is that motivation to keep moving on and keep doing what we do and try to make sure that we can do the best that we can for our patients, because we know that there's life-changing medications out here that are available for them. And if we can get them to have a better quality of life, that is just an amazing thing. And I'm sure you get a lot of patients that, that reach out to you and, and tell you how amazing their life is now that they've been, that you were able to help them get on a medication that otherwise would have been really difficult to get. Yes, a hundred percent. I'm always getting messages from my patients thanking me so much. You know, I honestly, I'm just, I'm so grateful that you started That's Derm Good because I believe that with this podcast, it's going to reach not only other bio coordinators, but field reimbursement managers and just, you know, sales reps, you mm-hmm. know, just anyone that touches the prescription or even providers, you know, just for them to kind of understand the importance of our role and the importance of making sure that you have that go-to person because, you know, there's some providers that actually do their own prior offs Mm -hmm. and it's really sad because they're calling the FRMs or, you know, whatever the case might be to help them. And it's like, you are a provider, you are seeing patients, you're doing all of this stuff. You need to have a single point of con- a single person that will yeah, make that can life. help handle that that mess. I mean, that it's a lot of work. And on top of of treating all of your patients, um, you know, that burden should not be put on to the provider. You know, they need to give BC educators a call, right? <laughs> Absolutely, one hundred percent. We are here to help with all <laughs> of your biologic needs. Right. Access is our priority in case you did not know that. (laughs) Thank you so much, Angie. I am so grateful to be able to work with you with BC educators and also just to have you on the podcast to be able to share your knowledge. And yeah, I just want to say thanks for your time. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Thanks for spending a few minutes with me and listening to That's Derm Good. You can expect new episodes of That's Derm Good every other week. The podcast is available on your favorite app, including where you're listening right now. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a new episode. Bye.